One of the most poignant but yet humorous references to pride that I have ever read was a quip by a 19th century English um, man of letters, statesman. His name was John Bright. And he lived at the time of Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. And he said this about the Prime Minister. He is a self-made man who worships the Creator. He is a self-made man who worships the Creator. This is not only clever and witty, it is theologically very sophisticated. I hope to demonstrate that it is theologically sophisticated today in this sermon. Today is the first sermon, by the way, in a series that I plan to preach on the seven deadly sins over the course of the rest of the summer. This first sermon is on pride. Pride, what the Romans called superbia and what the Greeks called hubris. You will see in this sermon the truth of the proverb, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before I fall. My text is found in Daniel chapter 4, verses 28 through 37. This is the story uh, that we have of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian king, and his uh, lifting up in great pride and then being brought down. It, in some sense, is an illustration of Proverbs 16, verse 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It illustrates that, if you will, to a T. And um, this is um, a text in the book of Daniel, of course, that sets forth the teaching throughout the Bible that God is the only God, and that God who is the only God is also Sovereign in all of his ways. Uh, this passage of scripture then is a passage about Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar is only one way of saying this. It also can be spelled with an R and it is both uh, ways are found in the scriptures. But let me say just a word about this man. He lived in the 6th century B.C., he was indeed a historical figure of great renown. Uh, he was the king of Babylon. He had come to that uh, following uh, his uh, father's conquests. But his father did not have the talent and skill and ability that King Nebuchadnezzar did. He was a man who was a great general. And uh, that part of the world, all the way from the Mesopotamia River Valley, all the way up around the Fertile Crescent, down the coast of Syria, Phoenicia, Israel, and into Egypt, they knew of his power, and they knew of his might in leading an army. He suffered very few defeats, and he fought in one of the most famous battles in all of history. Nebuchadnezzar, a great king, he was also a great builder. He built, uh, under his uh, uh, tutelage and reign, he built the great... Uh, 
institutions, if you will, in the ancient world of the city of Babylon. You've heard of the hanging gardens of Babylon. He built those. He built the great uh, uh, ziggurat uh, that is there, and he built uh, his own palace and temple. So he was a man of considerable ability as a builder. He was also a lawgiver. He saw himself in some ways as a second Hammurabi. Hammurabi was a, a great king that lived in that area a millennia before him and even more. So Nebuchadnezzar was a man of great achievement. He was in many respects a man that was self-made. Uh, he had extended everything much beyond what his father or the Babylonians had experienced up to that point. He is also the man, if you, as you well know, who was uh, instrumental in the Babylonian captivity. Starting in about 1605 BC, he began to carry out raids upon the Jews in and around Jerusalem. And by uh, 1587, he had completed what is called carrying off and deporting a number of Jews to uh, Babylon, and this began what is called the Babylonian captivity. He also sacked the city of Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple. So he is a figure that looms large in the history of the Jewish people. So we have here a great man. And there's no question then that his appearance in Daniel chapter 4 is going to illustrate something for us that is very important. What it will illustrate is this, of course, that God alone is sovereign and God alone is God and human beings, human beings are to accept their, if you will, role in the creation and they are to submit to this God. But let us look at the text. His pride well, his pride, no doubt, is great, but I want you to look at his boast. His boast, as you find it here uh, in his words, is not this, he says, this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Now, notice that boast. It is so brazen that it is embarrassing almost to us today. How could anyone make such a boast? But remember, he was a king with plenary powers. He was a man that could command and do things and could carry it out. He didn't have a loyal opposition as we do in our society. He was indeed a king and he thought of himself as a sovereign king, he says, my mighty power, I did this by my own hand, if you will, and for my own glory. Well, what happens? A voice comes from heaven just almost immediately. And that voice says to him, your royal authority has been taken. And what that voice continues to say is that you will be driven away from your people. And you will live with the wild animals. And then it says that you will be reduced to eating grass in the field like the cattle. Now, there are some commentators who try to come up with some kind of syndrome to show this is kind of common. Well, the text really won't let us kind of go down that road. 
It's not like quite this, this can be explained. It may mimic some other things, but this is truly a divine action that God has come to reduce him. He says, you will eat grass with the cattle. And the reason that it is, is because in the next verse, uh, he is to eat grass until he acknowledges God, but then his, his hair grows like that of an eagle and his fingernails and toes grow like talons. So it's a, it's a complex, if you will, figure that is set before us. And what it means is that uh, this one who thinks he is mighty and the apex of civilization has been reduced to being a wild man. He has, uh, if you will, been reduced to a feral uh, being that reverts back to the worst aspects of nature, a wild thing, if you will. And he is reduced to that for uh, seven seasons. And for these seasons, then, he is a, is a, uh, a wild man uh, reduced to live like a brute beast. Now, what does this mean? It means, then, that apart from God, of course, uh, we can have no civilization. We can have no culture. That's for one thing. And two, moreover, Without God, we can never be fully human beings. We were created in the image of God. That's for sure. But here, God in his sovereignty displays what he can do. And what happened to this man? Well, at some point, and the text does not say how, he comes to his senses. You know, that is, that is a phrase you will see over and over he came to his senses, meaning that he finally, if you will, spiritually wakes up. And what does he do? Well, he confesses who God is. And look at verses 34 and 35, and you will see his confession. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. How beautiful that is. The world is insane until it raises its eyes to see the Lord of glory. That no doubt explains some of the insanity on display today in our own society. Then he says, I praise the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. And Continue with me. His dominion, as it is an eternal dominion, his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He recognizes and acknowledges the sovereignty of God over all flesh. Now, this is a, a teaching or a truth in the scriptures that some have a difficulty with. But if God is to be God, it cannot be otherwise. We have to figure out how to square things and so forth. But one thing we can never do in trying to square and understand the sovereignty of God is to dismiss it it would be dismissed to our own peril. At the same time that my sanity was restored, he goes on to say, 
My honor and splendor will return to me for the glory of my kingdom. And so therefore he was destroyed. Now, this is an illustration then of that proverb that I read twice to you earlier at the beginning. And I want to make a couple of three points here from this story and from that proverb that you should know about pride. Historically, Christians have taught that pride is the mother sin. It is, if you will, that sin which produces all other sins. And in the seven deadly sins, in most lists, pride comes first. Not always in some of the lists. But in the seven deadly sins, most of them will put pride at the top. Because it is, has the ability to produce other sins, all the other sins, even some of the great sins. Pride then is the mother sin. It is what Christians have taught through the generations. Now, why is it the mother sin? Because it turns the creature away from God and it turns the creature to focus upon oneself. It turns the creature inward and not outward. Notice that Nebuchadnezzar had to look upward to begin to understand and to regain his sanity. When you turn your eyes inward upon yourself, you are making yourself into the divine. You are focusing upon yourself, but at the same time, you are not looking at things properly. When you turn inward, you are turning to a heart that is dark, relying upon sources, resources that are fallen, and therefore you are bound to be reduced, if you will, in society to, to uh, an uncivilized way of life. Now make no mistake about that. That is one of the troubling things I think most all of us have observed in our current society. And I'll say more than about, about that in just a moment. But notice, pride is something that is used in a good sense sometimes in the Bible. Uh, it will not always be pride that is sinful. There is a pride, by the way, that is good. So I have to make a distinction here before going any further. Now, if you read carefully the New Testament, you will notice that there are verses, for instance, like we find in Galatians 6.4. And there the Apostle Paul says, each one should test his own actions, then he can take pride in himself. Now let's make a distinction here between the pride that Paul is talking about and the pride that we find in the life of King Nebuchadnezzar. What Paul is talking about here is a kind of self-approval or self-respect. When you know you have done the right thing, and your conscience agrees with it. By the way, that is a good thing. In fact, that is a wholesome thing. I celebrate, and I know you do too, if you've watched any of the Olympic games, even though they're delayed, I don't know how many hours. But don't you rejoice and celebrate with those athletes who put so many years into something to, to, to win a swimming event. They almost have to put their lives on hold for years. Or someone has to put their life on holds for years to engage in gymnastics. 
You have to devote yourself to this and to this end. And it is an achievement that most of us could not possibly, could not possibly achieve. There is nothing wrong, if you will, in being uh, if, uh, approving of your own self-discipline and achievement. Paul calls that pride. In that sense, it's not the pride that we're talking about that destroys. In fact, this kind of pride is needed in our children in particular so that they might achieve. If you feel lousy about yourself all the time, you're probably going to live up to it. If you feel pretty good about your achievements, you're probably going to continue to strive more and more for excellence. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about pride. We're talking about that attitude or disposition that makes yourself divine. And that is what Nebuchadnezzar had done. He had made himself, if you will, the sovereign. He had not recognized the sovereignty of God. He, in some sense, was trying to make himself eternal, but yet he had to come to recognize that there was only one eternal. So there is a pride which Paul approves of. There is that pride which destroys. Now, let me further describe this pride that destroys. What does it do? Well, here's what it does. We are finite. The finite, limited human being refuses to be content. Now get this, refuses to be content the way God made you. That's what pride is. The finite human being refuses to accept the limitations and nature that God has placed upon us. You know, we're capable of marvelous achievements. We're capable of many things. God has made us in his own image and we can do marvelous things. I'm always amazed at what is, what is done in science or in medicine or in athletics or the superhuman uh, uh, roles that certain people play when, when there is a crisis. It's truly amazing about the human being. We have, we have powers that God has given to us in our creation, and yet there are limits. We are always the creature. We are never, if you will, never divine. There's only one divine who sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to redeem us from our sins. Now, when we refuse, if you will, to recognize this, the Greeks had a wonderful word for it. It's translated as pride, but it actually means presumption, hubris. We presume to be more than God wants us to be. In one sense, we not only are presumptuous, we are usurpers. We want to replace the role that God should have in our life with our own self. We become then, if I can put it in modern terms, the ground of our own reality. Now think of that for a moment. Reality is reduced to yourself and the way you observe things and the way you see things. There is no such thing as a creation that is visible and invisible. It's only a creation that I can comprehend and look what has happened. The finite, the limited person has reduced the world to him or herself. 
That is pride. That is what takes place. That is the dynamic. It is desiring to be God to oneself. That's the beauty of the observation of Disraeli, if that's true of Disraeli. That he was a self-made man who worships the creator, or that is himself. Again, I don't know that that's true about Disraeli, but what a wonderful insight. This is exactly what pride is. It's reducing the world to your mind, to your powers, and you will become the measure of all things. You become the measure of all things. And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he did this? He became mad and insane. That is the dynamic that you see. Modern humanism has in real life played this out before us and every day on our TV screens and everywhere else. Modern humanism is an attempt to live by one's own lights and to refuse the light of Scripture, the light of God's revelation. You know, there has been a serious rejection of the Bible in our own time. Uh, I am old enough, and some of you are, and you don't really have to be all that old. And you can remember when even the unbeliever would revere the truths of the Bible. It's what Francis Schaeffer called the Christian consensus. I may not be a Christian, but I know I'm wrong. I may not study the Bible very much, but I know that it it contains things that I should know and believe because they are true. There is the most vicious, horrible attack upon Christians and the scriptures today than I ever thought could possibly come to pass in this country. What we see is humanism playing itself out. Now, I don't say secular humanism. That's kind of a tautology. All humanisms are secular by definition. Humanisms that turn everything upon the self and reduce life to our own self and our own lights is the kind of pride that the scripture is talking about. It is the rejection of God's life. Now, how do we counter this? Well, the only way that this can be countered is developing a virtue called humility. It is through the grace of humility that we come to understand that life is bigger and grander than we ever could have thought or imagined because it was created by one who is bigger and grander than we could ever imagine or think. How do we counter this? Through the grace of humility. Now, most virtues you can practice. Let's take the virtue of generosity. Generosity is a great grace, isn't it? But it can be practiced. You can teach your children to be generous. Part of the educational process of teaching your children as a covenant child, a covenant parent to a child, is to teach them the grace of generosity and liberality the giving of themselves, the giving of their talent and resources. There may even be a gene, and I will, uh, will, will concede this, that's missing in some people, so they have to practice a little harder to be ge- generous. But it doesn't make any difference, does it? 
you can learn to be generous. And you see it on display, and when you see it on display, you, you say, there's a good person. Now, it may be true that learning a, a virtue or a grace like generosity will contribute to humility. It may very well. But humility is something really that you cannot directly practice. It, it is part of your judgment or reasoning process. It is the way you judge yourself. So rather than being merely a practical thing, it's almost an intellectual thing. It's the way you see and view yourself and the way you see and view your world. If you see yourself as being the measure of all things, you cannot possibly have much humility. Nebuchadnezzar's problem is that he had done all of these things. He was the sovereign. He had the power of life and death over every person in and around that city, and it was a great city. Humility is recognizing who you are in the light of who God is. Humility is tied to the way you think. For the scripture says, as a man thinks, so is he. Our Lord says, out of the heart of the issues of life. We must learn, if you will, to recognize who God is so that we might understand who we are. And in some ways, this is God's gift, is it not? But let me, let, me, let me talk just briefly about the first act of humility, true act of humility that anyone will ever, ever engage in. And that is submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's being able to call him Lord and not yourself. Wasn't that the earliest confession that you find among Christians? What did they confess? They confessed Jesus as Lord. I'm not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I once heard evangelists say that Jesus knocks at the door. But that door that he knocks at is so small, it's like Alice in Wonderland door. You have to get down on your knees to enter. The first act of humility is a surrender to the sovereign God as he revealed himself through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We talk about humble service that Christians render. If there is such a thing, and I think there is, it is through the simple fact that they've entered that low door. The Apostle Paul says that we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we should. All through the scriptures in the New Testament, there is this virtue of humility or grace of humility that is being talked about. It is the way you begin to think about who God is and who you are. When I discover problems in a marriage, for instance, or I have been out of line in my own marriage, guess what the problem is? It's the problem is certainly not a lack of humility, is it? The problem is never a lack of humility. Whenever there are problems in the church or at work, the problem is never a lack of humility. Paul says, prefer your neighbor above yourself. That is true humility. It is a way of looking at things. 
actually believing that things are the way they are, that God is God and you are you and your neighbor is equal to you. It is the way you look at the world that God has given his good gifts to you. Why then is pride the mother of all sins? Because it leads to idolatry. It is the sin of idolatry. If you read Isaiah 40 through 50, those chapters, you will see the greatest section in the Bible opposing idolatry. And why is the prophet so opposed to idolatry? Because it is the gateway sin to every other sin. It makes yourself God. Thus, the truth of John Bright's observation, even though it may not be true, about the Prime Minister, Benjamin Disraeli, is a great and wonderful observation. And that is that if you are a self-made man or woman and you believe that to be true, you will worship the Creator. Amen.